On this week's episode, we celebrate 40 years of Group C racing. Nine Whites Radio is your dedicated Porsche and car podcast, taking you closer than ever to the world's finest sports cars and the culture and history behind them. The show is brought to you by nineworks.co.uk, the innovative online platform for Porsche enthusiasts. Hosted by Porsche journalist Lee Sibley and 993 owner and engineer Andy Brooks, with special input from friends and experts around the industry, including you, our valued listeners. Max, Andy, I hope you're well. Very well. All good, good, all good. In the hood. All good in the hood. Excellent. We're, How's we're the Sibley? Yeah, mate. Cool and the gang. Cool good. and the gang. We're off the mark for the new series of Nine Works Radio. It was a fun episode last time out with Transaxles. Completely different this time, really, because we're going full on, full fat racing at Group C for this special episode. Full fat, all go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although on the transaxle thing from last week, I was out. Um, I was out yesterday, out in a village nearby, with Mandy and the dogs walking round. And I'm always looking in people's gateways and that sort of thing to see if there's any interesting cars. I saw a 928 GTS. Oh. In it looks like. I mean, I couldn't go in because the fellow was there. Um, maybe <laughs> Aventurine Green. Isn't that the perfect opportunity, though, to go? Well, get in he, there. He, he looked like or he was busy. Oh, was he? Okay. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, he, he certainly wasn't leaning against his car waiting for me to go in and talk to him. But <laughs> 928 GTS, that's pretty special in transactional terms. It looked really cool. It is really, really cool. That is cool. That is, just that story reminds me um, of just as we were coming out of lockdown so 2020 height of the pandemic and uh our dog jasper who's also the doorman to this fine establishment um was going absolutely crazy and barking at the door so went outside and there was a bloke standing on our drive just looking at my 996 so i opened the door you know chest goes out didn't it at that stage i was like can i help you mate and he was like yeah 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 just want to say lovely 996 i'm well into my porsches and he was telling us he used to have a transaxle car funny enough i can't remember what one it was but he just proceeded to like spill out his life story and say what car he had now he's looking for a 996 or a 997 i was kind of standing there incredulous and uh kind of let him speak. saying your boxes then well yeah <laughs> you probably weren't far off but just let him speak of that and then when he did his piece i said that's all well and cool but can i ask what are you doing on my drive, mate? <laughs> like, he's not, you know, if you come along and knocked on the door or something and wanted a chat, that's cool. But like, if it weren't for the dog and mental, no one would have known. And like, I'll check the CCTV afterwards. It's bizarre. He walks past and then he creeps down the side because at the time we were half stone, half concrete. The car was on the stones, which was on purpose because you can hear that. Um, he creeps down the side where the concrete is. So he was being kind of sly. Oh. And then came oh. out when I came out the door and he was like, oh, I'm a big Porsche guy. And it was like, yeah, cool. I think you're like a thief as well, but a cat one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, just uh, reminded me of that. Very bizarre. Um, but, well, yeah, I'd look, be the thief type. Like, oh, no, yeah. really? Just yeah, straight yeah, yeah. on. Yeah. Straight on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, I... Yeah, so there was a, a couple of us uh, went to Brands Hatch uh, at the weekend to watch the like Porsche Club Championship racing. And on that subject... It? Yeah, look, it was brilliant. It was really good. And for two reasons. The first 
thing was it was really good to introduce justin who designs the livery of the yes. car as part of our nine Works radio competition over christmas time he designed the car for charades uh rubystone 986 and this was the first time he had seen it in the metal so oh. a really really special moment so uh steve did he choke up no he, he was i tell you what he was he was super chuffed and so he should be as well yeah you know, like we were we were discussing like the opportunity and and kind of the surreal moment really where like your rendering or whatever it is drawing because people were submitting all sorts uh ending up like as a reality on a race car i mean that's pretty cool that's that's not um that's not any good fortune that's fallen upon us no. in our lifetime is it you know no. so really yeah. really really cool so it was great and and yeah steve the driver um at charade who obviously we we know we've had him on the podcast before he was showing justin around the car and pointing out a few like little bits and trick details they did so that was genuinely it was really special i've got a cool picture that i'm going to share on social media um of of the two so yeah really cool to introduce justin to his moving art piece mm. um and yeah really good to meet uh mark tordoff who is a nineworks member he's a nineworks patreon for this uh, podcast as well and uh he came along and bought his 944 that ah. spoke about on last week's pod yeah, yeah, yeah. so you know that was great to see the car and i have to say i mean it is mint is absolutely mint it's a year older than i am it's probably in better condition as well um, it's not difficult yeah yeah but you know like the, the interior like cloth interior kind of reminded me of like the 3.2 club sport with like the pinstripes, pinstripes. Yes. yeah i saw that picture of it, it looked really nice really, yeah it, honestly it was it was lovely and it, and it was absolutely mint so just in kind of following on from mark's sentiments last episode where he said that's the keeper and any other 911 would be a that would be the one that goes yeah i think there's a 997 gen 2 sniffing around the stable at the moment um i, I can see why it, it's it's mint it's absolutely mint that car lovely lovely very nice so yeah great good timing fun. great to see it you know so so soon after us you know talking about it that's brilliant i think so yeah and you know what it was it was a, a really good day um of awesome racing we managed to um, get some food in the porsche club um like big tent that they take around with them now which is great it's just like a hub of conversation with people both you know racing drivers uh team personnel but then yeah just uh loiterers like us <laughs> so um yeah it was it was top so yeah kudos to the guys at porsche club championship for for still organizing an absolutely awesome race meeting as always and some decent weather as well wasn't it it, nice. it was great yeah and it was perfect perfect racing conditions to be honest with you nice dry clear not too hot not too cold perfect beautiful so um yeah but max your 991 has uh been in at right tune this week yeah 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 i was at i was at chris's on uh on on thursday he was sorting out my my padam uh uh was it porsche active drivetrain mounts mm -hmm. i think is the um so engine mounts basically active engine mounts so my car as a as a sport chrono equipped car comes with padam albeit a uh although it's only a lowly c2s um so yeah so it's got those and when i first got it i bought the car from rpm um if you remember and during their warranty period so i'd had it for um i picked it up in the october and it was boxing day boxing day 2020 i was out having a little drive you know just to get get out get away from the from the christmasy stuff and uh and i had a padam error message come up rpm sorted that out uh in their warranty which is brilliant i knew it was an expensive part but you know i didn't really think too much about it because it was all it was all done but i did chat to a friend of mine who at the time had a 
981 came in and he'd also had a pattern failure and he you know he'd had to pay for his so he was pretty sore about it um but just recently after i got the mccann back from its extensive warranty work i think the, the day after i was using the 991 and i got the same pattern error message come up no. and i could not believe it Ugh. i could not believe it i was gutted um but and and i tell you it is such an expensive part that when, when they fail they fail in their stiffest option so it's essentially like you don't have padam anymore i thought i can't afford this i'm just going to leave it but that's not really how i like to uh operate so i did i spoke to chris and he said yeah you know of course we can sort that out and he looked into it and i priced it up and i thought okay you know i've got to get it done let's get it done so i was in last thursday and um i wasn't sure if it was near side or offside because there are two on the car I wasn't sure if it was near side or offside that had happened uh, last time when RPM fixed it. But they think from looking at it, just visually, that it was the same one that had failed again rather than the other one. Mm. So that they changed it. It was just one side they needed doing. So, you know, I've got a new engine mount on there. You know, it's a, it's a, I forget exactly the price, but it's over £700, the part, if Ouch. you have the active engine mounts versus £140 for a non padam solid engine mount on a 991. So, um, so yeah, and the same friend of mine who had the 981 Cayman, he now has a 718 Spider, um, which he bought nearly new, and he's had two pattern failures on it, both of which have been changed by his OPC under warranty. So, I mean, I don't know what other ex people's experiences are with 991s and other pattern equipped, car equipped cars, but I don't know, it starts to feel like a, like a weak point, like an Achilles heel. Mm. um you know i started to think that i wish it didn't have them <laughs> you know um yeah so that was an expensive week for me last week yeah oh, they're great these cars aren't they max <laughs> <laughs> keep it simple i say keep yeah. it simple well yeah, yeah yeah but i think we've talked about pattern before and you, you you know i think you know you've, you've driven a lot more cars than i have but you appreciate the virtues of pattern don't you in as a as a yeah uh, you do I, I kind of agree with your sentiment whereby um because you can you can toggle padam with the uh, active engine mounts. You can toggle it on or off. Oh no, you can't actually. That's pasm, isn't it? That mm. we've spoken about before. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm pretty sure they work in the same kind of way where it's not just on or off. You've got kind of two gate posts, and it's constantly kind yes. of changing in between those parameters. Um, yeah, look, it's, it's one of them. I think wasn't the nine nine one the first generation to have uh, padam as well. I think it was. I think it was. I, yeah. I, I did wonder if maybe a Gen 2 997 GT3 um, uh, had them. I'm not sure. I'd oh, have have, okay. Uh, yeah, no, I think you might be right there, actually. but for like, where they first came. Yeah, but like for introducing it to the mainstream, mm. if you like. Um, so it's a new technology. We're now 10 years in. Um, you know, some some might say you you've had your money's worth somewhere along the line although not <laughs> not you like do you know what i mean like but if, the, like the car itself um you know yeah you, is it a serviceable item like quite possibly yeah yeah maybe um you know maybe. yeah it's kind of it's kind of one of them it's a similar thing as my car was in at barn sport yesterday just having a quick oil change ahead of this uh european trip next uh next week and we were talking about IMS, as you often do when talking about 996s. <laughs> and, um, you know, a lot of the garages, particularly in this country, use the EPS um, IMS. You know, the, 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 the craze for the LN engineering bearing has definitely died down in this country. Yeah. Um, 
from what I have found. And uh, the EPS seems to be uh, the favoured one. But the reality is that that bearing is only a few years old. So this was a conversation Scott and I were having is, you know, in 10 years time, are we all changing out? bearings to something else and, and it, you know in a, in a way that's kind of a serviceable item when you look over the life of the car you know yeah yeah so yeah. It's, it's one of them really yeah yeah, yeah. it is a tricky one. i mean for the uninitiated so padam is yeah they're the active engine mounts and they have a you know i'm not sure exactly what the phrase is sort of electromagnetic um sort of um liquid in them and with increasing engine speed and increasing load uh laterally they stiffen up so you know trying to um you know keep the you know the weight of the engine at the back of the car under under control you know using these active mounts so that's the that's the gist you know it's a great idea it, it is but, and like particularly on the 911 because the engine is essentially in the wrong place isn't it you know and being flung out back i know it was a little bit more on top of the rear axle for the 991 um but it's still kind of in the in the wrong place dynamically yeah um so you can see while it was rolled out kind of across the range yeah yeah but, um yeah and an expensive week it's an expensive week it's certainly a part i get the um, just by looking at part numbers and that sort of thing it's a different they have changed the part numbers if they've gone along so that makes you think maybe they're trying to uh develop it or it's an ongoing you know i'm not sure if that's what a change in part number means over the years yeah. if it's a development piece but i don't know let's see let's mm. see let's yeah. see if i can go for more than 18 months before the next one yeah yeah just yeah. put solid mounts in next time yeah <laughs> well well <laughs> i did think about leaving it actually i spoke to a couple of people you know our friend richie uh, you know he's he was really helpful with some some knowledge and information on it and when it does fail it fails in its stiffest setting so effectively like not having padam yeah so you know if it does happen it's not something that you need that you need to necessarily do but you know then obviously every time you start the car you get an error message and it's just you know I, I, yeah 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 i was really umming and ahhing about what to do but i got some stuff coming up with the car and i wanted it to be perfect yeah um so it's done it's done now let's let's see it's a, it's an ongoing experiment eh, for nine months <laughs> I like <laughs> things it, I, I do like i like it uh, andy on on subjects of ongoing experiments uh you kind of mentioned in the week between these podcast recordings that you you might be fancying a bit of a new project um yeah i've got a hankering for an sc uh, yeah ah. but yeah we'll see we'll see see what happens just yeah uh, yeah how come what's your what's your thinking just fancy a bit more old aurora yeah i don't know almost like a sort of kind of finished the the 993 yeah it's like building like building your own house isn't it <laughs> yeah build the house done, and then you done the living room. everybody <laughs> seems to sell it don't they so yeah so would this be an addition to the 993 or as a replacement uh probably be a replacement if i was to do it yeah wow but no, i don't yeah. know i think there's still keep thinking about it but then back to the 993 got lots of good ideas for stuff to do on that as well so yeah do you know what there's one one thing that you absolutely need to do particularly in light of the fact of all the work that you've done over winter yeah you take the car on a road trip mate you'll, I do. you'll, you'll fall in love like in a big way you'll fall in love with it yeah, all over yeah. again as always yeah, happens very true so. very true yeah. yeah next year is the year for that definitely yeah, yeah. nice yeah. mate nice this podcast is endorsed by the nine works marketplace tailored for enthusiasts this is your first port of call for buying quality porsche sports cars from trusted dealers with warranty finance and independent inspections all available our marketplace car of the week this week is an achingly beautiful naturally aspirated 991 carrera gts from the guys at paragon porsche 
These are highly sought after cars right now. And pleasingly, this one's as driver spec as it gets. Think rear drive, manual, non-sunroof, bucket seats, rear seat delete, and finishing guards red with an iconic factory fit ducktail. With less than 7k miles on the clock from new in 2015, it's up for 92995. And you can check it out and others at nineworks.co.uk. Um, cool. So group C. Max, I think you're largely going to be leading this podcast because, um, well, it's, you know, it's a huge kind of part of your, I'd say it's the cornerstone of your Porsche passion in a way. It is, it is, it is a really big, it's a really big thing uh, for me. You know, obviously, you know, like everyone, I did fall in love with 911s for, through, through various things. But when I was uh, 11 years old, um, I went to Le Mans with my dad. We went on a Page and Moy coach trip. Um and uh you know that you know 1987 is one of the you know the peak you know yeah. peak of the group c era you know it started in 1982 um so we went off on 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 the bus we got the train from colchester Wee. uh you know into king's cross or liverpool street which everyone it goes into and then you know got our page and my coach and off and off we went and you know that was a pretty seminal moment for me as a young porsche i bet porsche enthusiast you know the iconic rothman's liveried 962s also at that time the 961 as well the 959 based thing which is a mega thing in its own right yeah but yeah you know so um you know that was a big that was a big deal uh, had your dad uh, been before he hadn't he hadn't ah, okay. you know yeah it, it, it was a tick box thing you know uh, for him um yeah. probably taking me was probably the, the excuse that made it happen you know when we did it on a made budget. it all right with your mum <laughs> yeah made it all right with my mum you know we had to sleep on the coach and everything you know we didn't have, if you didn't stay up all night you had to sleep on the coach we didn't have a yeah. tent or anything like that so yeah. um you know i was only 11 so i couldn't do the whole night thing so it's pretty you know it, but i mean it was great and it did have wow, a big what an adventure it had a big impact on me um you know in Porsche Group C terms and Le Mans terms. I have to admit, at that time, I'm not sure I even knew there was a World Endurance Championship because Le Mans is such a big for, for for British car enthusiasts. I think British racing enthusiasts. Le Mans is such a such a thing, isn't it? Such a passion. Yeah. I'm not sure I realised that Jaguar then went on to win the World Sports Car Championship that year. I thought, how did that happen? They didn't win Le Mans. <laughs> 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 you know, so uh, you know, yeah, that was a big that was a big deal for me. Seeing Derek Bell, you know, so a British driver winning in a factory Porsche, uh, you know, one of the great races, some would say the great race. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that had a big impact on me. Yeah, that's cool, man. That's really cool. So Max, you're going to be best placed then to tell us what exactly was Group C racing? Well, I mentioned when I was talking about my trip to Le Mans that Group C started in 1982. Um, and Group C, um, you know, was, a, was part of a revised a uh, series of formulas that the FIA came out with, you know, along with Group A and Group B. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, group A, most famous for touring cars. Group B, although it wasn't a rally-only formula, most famous for Group B rallying. And then Group C, which was sports cars. And those three categories replaced the old groups one to six, uh, you know, which Porsche fans will know from the, you know, the 935, which was a, which was a group five car and the 936, which won, um, Le Mans also, but which was a group six car. And then, um, you know, things like the RSR, which would have run in group four. So I think what the FAA were trying to do at the time, uh, was especially with the formula of group C being, a not an economy formula, but it was a fuel 
capacity based formula they were trying to slow cars down you know that's the constant battle isn't it of motor racing against the regulations didn't do um, well so, there did they <laughs> no so i think they were trying to stifle engine uh development you know thinking of things like the 917 which yeah. was yeah such a massively powerful engine um so i think that's what they were trying to do um but in 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 going for that you know fuel capacity formula of 100 liters but keeping everything else fairly open um but they attracted manufacturers by wanting the cars to be, or the engines at least, to have some m manufacturer connection. So yeah. it attracted, I mean, Porsche are always going to do it, of course, because the you know, sports car racing is their thing. But it attracted Jaguar back in, it attracted Mazda, you know, famously one of the most famous Group C cars with the Wankel Rotary. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's that was a sort of premise behind Group C and also IMSA in the states which was the american version and it, and it just created this great um you know this this great period of motorsport because of the variety that yeah. uh, that it attracted um yeah it's funny because the the like prior to that the 935s were kind of dominating motorsport in europe and in the states of course but then group c gave rise to a whole new era of domination for the manufacturer and the the, the 956 being the most successful porsche uh, certainly platform or most successful porsche racing car uh ever and, and you know and as, and as porsche kind of points out there's kind of a, a period of 12 years between its first and last kind of victories uh from 956 to 962 which is is ludicrous and and i mean guys you're a little bit older than i am but I, i'm sure you'll kind of remember firsthand the absolute domination that these cars kind of enjoyed in the series throughout the 80s yeah yeah you know and group c racing really really was popular i remember watching the start of le mans and the first i forget how long on grandstand um and recording it you know on the on vhs and, and watching it in fact i think it, i think my mum recorded it for us whilst dad and i were there in 1987 uh -huh. and coming home for that um, yeah and we came back and watched it you know as that mum had recorded but they were showing you know, that was you know you know saturday afternoon tv so it really was it really was popular and i mean porsche probably deserves some credit for um you know for being prepared and being able to make cars and sell them to privateers you know you know they'd sell a competitive car of course the works cars were always more developed than the privateer cars uh, but they, you know they'd sell you a car um you know that you could you could you could potentially win le mans if you you know if you put the right people in it and the right team about around it so i think porsche deserve a lot of credit probably for the success of group c as a formula uh, definitely definitely and and uh of course we mustn't forget that porsche always uses its race cars as a basis for the development of technology and the evolution of technology for its road cars and i mean pdk traces its roots right the way back to 956 and 962 yeah. from the group c days you know um i think derek bell previously on this podcast has, has spoken to us and told us about how he was testing an early form of pdk uh, years and years and years before it would eventually wind up on on the roads going 911 for the 997 gen 2 but um yeah so again like a real platform for technology yeah well they you know they they broke in porsche terms a lot of new ground with that car you know it's their first monocoque race car uh, mm -hmm. an aluminium monocoque i think they explored um you know composite technology but i think it was too expensive at the time but but still it was the first 
monocoque race car and um, and also ground effects ground effects yeah being yeah. able to drive on the ceiling which of course the, the museum at porsche still celebrates today because it has a mm. it has one of the cars suspended upside down doesn't it it's kind of yeah. hammer the point home that yeah. you could theoretically drive it on the ceiling yeah and you know such an exciting time you know it's you know you look in formula racing these days and you know it's hard to make big steps isn't it these days because so much is so much is known and so yeah. much can be um and engineered you know on a computer before you put it into practice but in the early 80s you know they they really were you know able you're able to make big strides if you had the ideas and you could put it put it, it into practice and um, or get things really wrong as well or yeah or get things <laughs> yeah. really wrong. so i mean it's going to be fascinating when you have the opportunity to speak to norbert singer to you know to to, to hear some of his experience of, of doing that you know he was the man he was the man that did it but yeah yeah the 956 is described as his baby so it'd be interesting to see uh yeah get an account of that which we'll we'll hear a bit later on in the podcast it has to be said so um right okay well look so we've got that to look forward to from the engineer side i think it'd be prudent to speak to a driver yes yeah so we've got friend of the show mike wilds who's going to come on and talk to us you know mike's a you know a great guy and a brilliant storyteller and uh, you know, he raced Group C in period uh, in the 1980s for Ecuria Cos in the C2 class, but also for Nissan in C1 at Le Mans. Um, and, you know, he can put so much context around it, you know, because he's raced Formula One as well. So that's really interesting. And then latterly, as a historic racing car, he's raced uh, 956s, various 956s, 962s, and some really late Richard Lloyd um Nigel Stroud 962 so I'm really interested to talk to him about about that um and also just to see if when my lottery win comes up and I do buy one if I'm actually going to be able to drive it or not <laughs> so uh, you know really interested to talk to Mike and then obviously that's um been part of the inspiration for uh group C or artwork yeah uh, enterprise yeah well you know they're such iconic cars aren't they group C I was thinking about this because you know with it being the 40th anniversary this year you know there's there are great eras and special eras of all sorts of racing for all sorts of people doesn't and you, know, and you sort of wonder is it just an age-related thing you know if you're an appropriate age do you look back on something in a nostalgic way and think that was the best you know that was they were the greatest or they were the, you know there's there's always an element of that but you know the more you read and the more people you talk to you begin to understand that group c you know really really was a golden age of sports car racing and of Le Mans. Um, you know, the cars are pretty, pretty incredible. I've been to some of the 40th anniversary things this year, and there are people who didn't really know very much about Group C because they're younger than me, uh, you know, so they didn't remember it in period. And they're like, wow, look at these cars, man. You know, these look incredible. Uh, you know, the, the liveries and the shapes of the cars, um, you know, they are really special. It definitely, man. It's perfectly surmised, my friend, I have to say, because yeah look it's some some people you either dig racing or you, or you don't it's simple as that but yeah with with group c i think that kind of captivated um a, a wider audience than perhaps um sports car racing would otherwise do uh been reading this week that you know some would say it was almost as popular as formula one in the period mm. and i kind of get that because those cars in that period 
those drivers as we're about to find out you know are still celebrated today and certainly in terms of like porsche's history it's an important part of the porsche motorsport tapestry so it's um yeah it should make for a really fun episode on this podcast today because we're going to be talking to a uh, group c racing driver we're going to be uh, showcasing an exclusive segment of an interview with mr norbert singer no less which is going to be epic that's and amazing we'll be- really cool and then I'm, I'm sure we'll give a bit of a historical background to to the cars as well and, and to the uh the discipline which max i'm sure you'll be responsible for <laughs> <laughs> so yeah Do my best. yeah um and on that note uh hello mr mike wilds good morning how are you very well how are Wonderful. you yeah look thanks thanks for your time today to to record this podcast as we celebrate 40 years of group c anyway um it'd be great to start by asking you what your memories are of group c perhaps from afar first before you jump behind the wheel yes um i first really became aware of uh, group c in 1984 it was a phone call from ray malik of rml uh, he told me that he was going to build a group c2 car to run for a courier cost Obviously, I was aware of Group C, but um, because I had no connection with it, uh, I was uh, racing. I started racing historic cars and so on by that time for various people, but I didn't have an awful lot of racing going on. Excuse me. So um, Ray invited me up to uh, his workshops to ask me if I'd be interested in driving for the team. He showed me his drawings. Uh, they he bought a, a car on behalf of Ecuricos, uh, which was uh, a Decadenay, which was Lola based, with yeah. a Cosworth V8 uh, in the back, um, and the deal seemed ideal for me. Uh, it was really they wanted my experience of driving. Um, I had done Le Mans in a Porsche, a baby Porsche 935 in 1981. And I'd done Le Mans a couple of other times in a Lola and uh, something else, I can't remember. Um, So they were looking for my experience. They were going to put David Duffield in the car, which they did initially. And it was for me to guide David into 1,000K races and 24-hour races and so on. Uh, So that's really how I became very involved uh in group c it was really by being offered that drive and, and getting into it they th- those those cars that ray built under the curious banner they were really very pretty really nice racing cars weren't they it was a pretty little car with the emphasis on the little it was very very small and it ran 13 inch wheels uh to keep the um frontal area um low and as aerodynamic as possible which caused us a little bit of problem because we couldn't really run very large brakes and <laughs> um we tested at silverstone but we could only i could only get about um 180 miles an hour down towards stowe yeah so i knew it was going to be a quite a quick little car uh, but it, we had no idea of how quick it would be at le mans our first race with it was at the Monza 1000Ks in 1984, 
which we led Group C2 and was doing pretty well overall, to be honest, because Monza suited the car. It was quite quick and a uh, quick circuit. And uh, we finished second in the end because, um, sadly, being its first race but with the team, when the boys warmed the car up in the morning in the paddock, uh, with the Cosworth V8, you put it quite rich on the mix mixture on the metering unit to warm the car up because when it when you put it lean it's very sharp and it it won't run very well so they put it on full rich warm the car up and then forgot to put it uh. to lean again. so at the end of the i was running out of petrol um so we lost a load of time um while we readjusted the metering unit and so on and <laughs> We had to then, because we'd used so much fuel, we only had a, a fuel allocation yeah. for the for the thousand k's. Um, we had to cut the revs to uh, to finish the race on the fuel allocation. Uh, but we finished second, um, which was a good start to um, the car's career. Yeah, yeah, because that's that's. Uh, I'm not sure if every all listeners would know. You know, one of the premises of Group C is that it was a fuel allocation formula wasn't it and that yes, was absolutely. you know that was to its benefit i think in terms of the variety that it then allowed in other you know in other areas in terms of configuration and manufacturer and all sorts of things yeah, it was to me it was wonderful i loved group c group c i've had a 57 year racing career and group c by far was the best uh five or six years of my racing career because as you say the variety uh, I love that technical aspect of working uh, with the other drivers to achieve a result and with the engineers. Um, it was very technical and, and I loved it to bits. Um, after Monza, we, uh, we went to Le Mans and um, the car had never been at maximum speed because uh, there was nowhere really in the UK, we could do it in, unless you went to a very, very long runway and so on. Mm. We didn't really um, worry about it too much. Ray, who is a brilliant engineer, Ray Malik, um, a dear friend of mine, he worked out that at 200 miles an hour with the tyre growth, with the centrifugal force increasing the OD of the rear tyres and so on, that um, at 8,000 RPM, we'd be doing 200 miles an hour. So being the most experienced, um, they sent me out first. <laughs> and uh, I did a, an installation lap, came in, we checked, no leaks and everything, and it was time to, uh, to go and sit for three and a half miles, absolutely flat in top gear, and see how the car was whether it was stable how fast it would go um it was very exciting i was really really excited and i i exited exited uh tet rouge and i set off down uh, the morsan and i pulled uh i think we were running about eight five eight six as ma uh, maximum rpm on it uh, and to at those rpm would you believe we were <clears throat> we managed to get that engine running at eight miles to the gallon which uh, is astounding, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, quite incredible. So anyway, I set off and I went through all the gears 
at maximum uh, RPM. Obviously, the engine would rev to probably 10 or, or more safely. Yeah. But we were well within the limits of the engine. And I'm sitting there in fifth, and it's uh, climbing up through 7.2, 7.4, 7.6. Seven, eight, eight thousand. I thought, wow, I'm doing. I'd never been so fast in a car in my life. Um, that's two hundred miles an hour, and then it went eight two, eight four, <laughs> and it just carried on going. And the little car pulled two hundred and seventeen miles an hour. Wow, oh, it was absolutely ludicrous. It was so much faster than any other C two car on the straight. So much so that. As I was going to Tet Rouge before that first run, um, Jonathan Palmer went storming by in um, a, a Porsche 956 or 962, I can't remember. Um, and I, we set off down the straight. He pulled out quite a way. And I got in the tow and sort of pulled up alongside him and waved to him. <laughs> and the look on his face was um, quite amazing. But anyway, I, I got to the amazing speed and uh, I took my hands off the steering wheel. The car was so stable. It was absolutely amazing. Luckily, just as I put my hands back on the steering wheel, there was an almighty bang. Uh, I mean, huge. Like, if you were sitting in side a, a huge balloon and somebody burst it there was a change of pressure and i froze because i didn't know what the hell was going on i didn't want to touch the brakes the steering i couldn't see very well because the car filled with dust and there was an amazing noise wind noise as you can imagine at 217 miles an hour um and I started as it, I slowed down. Uh, I started to see steering's okay, brakes okay, engines okay. And then I looked to the right, and the whole side of the car, the door, had blown out <laughs> <laughs> with, with aerodynamics. Um, so we got the car repaired and uh, then drilled lots of holes in the windows on both sides, which cured the problem. But Christ, it frightened me. Yeah. <laughs> but oh, I had a fantastic little car. And I think in 1984-85, we were in the top two, I think, um, top two or three in the World Championship. And then 1986, we did a deal with Austin Rover to run the 6R4 V6 engine. Right. We gave to John Dunn at Swindon. And... Um, he modified it for endurance racing, and we won the world championship with that in '86, beating all the Cosworth cars, which was great. Wow, that's fantastic! God, I didn't know that. that. Amazing. Anyway, so Group C to me was better than Formula One. Yes, I enjoyed. I didn't do many Grand Prix, and I it was the achievement of a race driver's ambition to sit on the grid with Nicky Lauder and so on and so forth it was wonderful but group c knocked it into a car hat. yeah yeah and and that that applies even to driving the car does it because you sort of get the impression that you know everything other than after an f1 car is pretty you know feels pretty heavy and slow even something like a sports car but not at all not at no. all um i mean generally uh at circuits in a, a c1 car 
um, the times we would do at Silverstone or something would put us mid-grid on the Grand Prix. So they were they were anything but slow. Um, they were the best. They had ground effect. They had aero. If you were racing a Porsche, you could turn the boost knob up and you could get over a thousand horsepower. I mean, they were awesome cars. Awesome. Yeah. It was yeah, so yeah. much so that Bernie Eccleston killed the formula. Yeah. yeah. It was brilliant that they were based around that fuel consumption thing, wasn't it? Because it, it opened the floodgates to use to doing so many different things in sure. how, you know, what, what engine configurations, aerodynamics, it just. Yeah. But also it, that's, why manufacturers loved it and manufacturers yeah. were going towards group c and not formula one yeah yeah that's really interesting about the 6r4 um yeah. motor i didn't know that that was part of the austin rover deal i remember the cars and the austin rover livery but i didn't realize yeah. i was going to ask you about how that came about and uh but that's really interesting because by by the time i because i we were just saying earlier on, I went to Le Mans in 1987 and i remember the akira cost cars and by that time i think they were the data post <laughs> livery yeah. the, the yeah. it was the yellow and that was quite swift something air. swift air, yeah 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 we had two cars um but it was great dicing with my friend ray malik occasionally we were um it was nice to have a bit of uh inter-team rivalry and um they were the same basic same car in 84 85 86 and 87 the four years i drove for the team the cars were basically the same um with obviously slight modifications so yeah. the, the design was flawless it was absolutely ideal for group c2 yeah. um i did want to drive group c1 um but the 6R4 deal was was brilliant because it was good to be tied to a manufacturer. Yeah. Um, I was concerned because with the deal with the manufacturer, they had a rally driver called Mark Douay, uh, a Belgian. And uh, part of the deal was, well, we'll give you the engines and support and so on, um, but you take our driver. I thought, rally driver? Oh. <laughs> but it couldn't have been better. He was so quick. He was fun to be with. We um, we shared rooms sometimes. Uh, when uh, David Leslie was driving, I I was his roommate mostly. We we drove uh, together for most of my uh, four years with them. Uh, but when I drove with Mark in Japan and, or wherever where we were together, to room with him was amazing. He was such good fun. <laughs> and, uh, as I say, I needn't have worried about his competitiveness. He was uh, incredibly quick. So uh, the deal was I, absolutely ideal for a Curiacos. They didn't have a lot of money. It was Hugh McCaig's money. Um, so it helped the team out. One of the funniest things was we, we – we tested the uh, the engine. It was a lot less powerful than the Cosworth, but it was a lot lighter, and its fuel consumption was a lot better, which was uh, great because anything yeah, yeah. we could do to save a pit stop was was brilliant. Um, so we're doing the Silverstone Thousand Ks uh, in '86, and I was driving with Ray Mallet 
and um, <clears throat> we were doing very, very well. And then suddenly Ray came into the pits and oh, what on earth has gone on? And he got out of the car. He said, oh, I felt it tighten up. So I turned it off. Oh, so they all dived at the back of the car and looked at it. And there, were, there was a con rod sticking up the side of the block. <laughs> <laughs> blown, the, blown the thing apart. I, I, uh, I've just written a book, um, which hopefully will be published in around November, December time. And it's called Life on the Wild Side. So you must get it. <laughs> um, and I've, I've relayed, well, thousands of my stories uh the trouble is in here i've got a million stories about uh, things that happen in motor racing and one of the funniest for me is when ray got out and said oh it tightened up so i turned <laughs> it off you know not that the bloody thing exploded <laughs> <laughs> so that was a that was at silverstone so of course you know it's hard not to talk all the time about Le Mans because it's such a special event but as yes. part of the world sports car championship you're taking that car to some of the great circuits um, you know, you must have taken it to Spa and places yep. like that. Yeah. I mean, oh, what, what a fantastic again, time. Oh, yeah. We raced all over the world. We, you know, we did the Fuji uh, thousand Ks yeah. uh, in Japan, uh, all over Europe, obviously, Nürburgring, Spa, um, Silverstone, Brands Hatch. We just followed the world championship. It was, yeah. it was fantastic. Um, um, the car was, was quick at Spa. And we were on for winning the world championship, I think, in 1985. And uh, the little car could do um, for for you or any of you, your um, listeners um, know that uh, there are some very quick corners at Spa, mm. one of which is the is Blanchemont. And uh, I turned into Blanchemont absolutely flat. And I think it was Martin Brundle in a silk-cut Jaguar um, just tapped me at the back going through. He he was obviously in a quicker car, but for some reason uh, he got so close through there, uh, it, he could have waited a little while and overtaken me up towards the uh, the old bus stop but yeah he touched me and i uh, spun all the way down towards the uh, the bus stop hitting the barriers and so on luckily i didn't get hurt but the car was out and sadly that cost us the world championship oh no way yeah he missed on that moment yeah the hazards of multi-class motorsport a eh? differences in speed and that sort of thing is yeah, but the we weren't that much different, you know. Quick C two cars weren't that much, especially in the quick corners. Uh, there wasn't yeah. uh, that much difference. Um, quite what uh, was going on, I don't know. All I remember was that uh, I felt a bang, and next thing I'm having a massive accident at God knows what speed. Yeah. So, do you think, Mike? Because I was surprised looking back at your, um, you know, your your racing history that. So you drive a lot of Group C Porsches that will have done as historic cars. I thought you must have, you know, back in the day you must have raced them. But I suppose because you were doing, you know, you spent that time uh, racing in the World Championship and winning the World Championship with the Curia Cos. So perhaps that would have been a time when you might otherwise have been in a perhaps a privateer or, or you know, even in a work supported. That opportunity may have come had you not been doing that. It, it would have been nice. It would have been nice. Um Derek Bell very kindly has written the forward for my book. 
Yeah. And uh, we had a conversation on it. I phoned him and asked him if he would do it. And we had a conversation. Um, firstly, I thanked him so much for, for doing it. And he said, I'm absolutely chuffed to bits to do it for you because we both survived. Um, <laughs> because it, we, we both raced through some very dangerous periods in Formula One and Group C. Um, but also, um, he was kind enough to say that uh, we spoke about uh, getting drives and so on. I didn't get a drive with a manufacturing group C until 1988 when I drove for Nissan at Le Mans. Yeah. And to drive a group C1 car was, it was slightly heavier and slightly faster, but not a huge difference to what I was used to in group C2. Um, and it's really just, we spoke about, it, it's really just luck of the draw. Um, I'm not professing to be any great shakes as a racing driver, but I honestly think I started having these thoughts when I was in Formula One. I drove my heart out to qualify when I eventually qualified for my first Grand Prix in, in Watkins Glen. There were 30 cars for 25 places. And sometimes I look back at the, the paperwork now and think, well, never been to Watkins Glen before, <clears throat> never driven there, uh, yet I was 14th or 15th in first practice in front of Jacques Lafitte and all yeah. these people who were heroes, heroes of mine. And I, well, I couldn't have been that bad. Um, <laughs> if if I could have sat in a McLaren M23 or a Brabham BT44 or a Lotus 72, could I have forged a decent career in Formula One? And it's a, a little bit the same in Group C. If I could have got a test with Porsche, uh, if I could have got a test with Jaguar, who knows? I, I could have hopefully forged a decent career with uh, a Group C1 manufacturer. Yeah. But uh, it wasn't to be. Um, as I said in my book, uh, I suppose I'm like a, a journeyman boxer. I, I I was good enough to compete with people who were would be world champions, but uh, never could do it myself, which is a shame. But as you say, you did, um, in 1988, you signed with Nissan and drove that car in C1. You know, how did that come about? What, and what was that experience like? Well, it, it started uh, towards the end of the year before. Somebody approached me at a 1,000K race when I was racing um, for a Curia Cost. They told me that there wasn't a place with me. For me, in 1988, they were moving on into an Aston Martin powered group c1 car that ray had designed and um i think they were for finance what have you taking pay drivers and so on and so forth mm -hmm. so there wasn't a place for me and uh, a chap came up to me uh, who was an agent for nissan and said uh, would i be interested in talking to them about driving uh, sadly it was only for lamont um so i said i would uh again this start of a, another story if you if you like of how mm -hmm. it 
came about. Um, Nismo had a base at Milton Keynes, and it was agreed that I would go for a meeting with Howard Marsden, who was the head of um, Nismo in Europe, and would be running um, uh, the car. The the Jap- Japanese were going to run a Japanese run car and a European run car. Mm-hmm. I would be driving with Wynne Percy and an Australian called Alan Grice. I had a rusty Rover 800 at the time, which I bought off. Uh, I did some work for um, Rover on track, and they s- sold me one at uh, sold me one at a good discount. Uh, and I'd kept it for, for quite a while, and it wasn't the best car in the world. I thought I can't turn up at Nismo in a in a, a rusty <laughs> motor yeah. car. Um, so. I, uh, by this time, I had my helicopter license and I'd become a helicopter instructor. So I talked to one of the owners of uh, an aircraft and he um, said that uh, I could borrow his little two-seat Robinson helicopter. And I thought, what I'll do, I I needed to try and set a level because I wanted to be paid good, a good... um, Valerie yeah. was driving for them. And I thought uh, I had spoken to Wynne Percy. He'd already done his deal. And he said, well, um, I'm getting £5,000 to to drive at Le Mans. And I said, oh, okay. And I thought, I need to ask for more than that to because they might say, oh, well, our, our price is 5000 maximum. Um, so... Uh, I said, uh, I phoned Howard and I said, I'm really sorry. Uh, on the day of our meeting, I'm very, very busy. I have another meeting in the north. Uh, so I'm going to come up in the helicopter. I didn't say it was mine. <laughs> and I wanted to set this level. And um, I said, could we meet at uh, Cranfield, which is an airfield quite close to um, Milton Keynes? He said, yes, 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 so we'll meet there. We'll meet at the control tower, and I'm sure I'll be able to get a room and we can sit and uh, have a chat. So I arrive in my little helicopter, and there's Howard Marsden. I go up to air traffic control, pay my landing fee, and um, say, do you have a room that I can have a meeting? Yes, certainly, there's a briefing room down. So, So we go to this briefing room, and we start negotiating, and they wanted me to go to Japan to test the car and so on and so forth. And um, and then it came down to the wages. And I said, oh, uh, my normal fee for a 24-hour race is £8,000. And he just said, okay, that's fine. Now, what we'll do... <laughs> <laughs> no <way. laughs> Why didn't I ask for ten grand? Or... Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah that's fine and uh, we'll pay all your expenses and so on and so forth. But um, it was quite, quite, quite funny. And it was, um, it was the most I'd been paid to drive a Le Mans anyway. So it was good. (laughs) (laughs) So 1988 Le Mans, of course, that's a famous Jaguar victory. You know, everyone knows that it could have been another Porsche victory had things worked out a different way, but of course that's motor racing, especially 24 hour racing. I um, I don't think, Derek Bell's ever forgiven Klaus Ludwig for not doing his pit stop and running yeah. out. 
<laughs> Which, yeah. funny enough, I saw him the other day, and he still talks about it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, how how was the Nissan? Was it was it was it a good a, a good car, a fast car? It was without doubt the worst racing car I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it dear. Really was. and i spent the whole week wishing i was in a silk cut jaguar or one of the shell dunlop porsches um i tested it in fuji and uh the engine was basically a copy of a dfv but with two massive turbos on it yeah and they said we fitted the the car with a with a qualifying engine and we'd like to check the mapping and so on and so forth. Um, so they said, go out and uh, warm the tires up. The engine basically at the RPM we give you and the boost that we will give you, um, you basically get one flying lap because it will stress the block and the rods <laughs> and crank and so on. So I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Fuji, but there's a chicane before a long right hand on to a 200-mile-an-hour straight past the pits. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I warmed the car up, got the brakes warm, got the tyres warm, came out of the chicane to the right hand or onto the straight, started to accelerate in third, and I always, when I because I'd raced there before, uh, short shifted to fourth and just went flat on the throttle. Um, the boost gauge was going up, and then suddenly the boost gauge just flicked to the top. Mm. And I guess it, the, the engine must have had about 1,500 horsepower, but it was like a switch. So you felt as though you had five, six, seven hundred horsepower, and then it doubled instantly. There was no with a 956 or a 962 Porsche, the delivery is linear. It's beautiful how Porsche uh, have sorted their turbocharging on their engines. So I'm now doing probably 130, 140 miles an hour towards the straight, and this thing suddenly just lit up the back tyres, and I had a little bit of a right lock on, of course. So I arrived onto the straight in a cloud of smoke spinning, <laughs> burst all four tyres, wrote off four wheels didn't touch anything um but the japs were not very impressed with me <laughs> <laughs> but it it was they couldn't seem to get the delivery of the power right uh, it was either 700 horsepower or double instantly uh, it, it, it really wasn't very nice to drive no. so they put four new wheels and tires on it i did 15 laps um they checked all the the mapping and what have you uh they, they turned the boost down and what have you <laughs> um and uh then i came home ah. so funny and especially like to contrast that against the likes well Derek bell said you know the the, the porsche was such a lovely car to drive well, you know it's like driving a, a fast road car i yeah. mean it's incredible i mean a very fast road car yeah but, um when I got to Le Mans with the Nissan, um, Fuji seemed pretty good. The, the handling seemed pretty good. And when I got to Le Mans, the, we did about 238, uh, I think, on the straight with, with good power. 
Um, but the car was suffered from something called bump steer. I don't know if any of you have, have suffered uh, mm -hmm. with a car with bump steer. Um, it's bad enough when it's on the road. Um, it's where the car reacts to the um, geometry of the front suspension is not right, and it will hit a bump, and it will just turn the car left or right randomly. And at 238 miles an hour, over the crown of the Molson, the car was just dangerous. I mean, yeah, really. You don't need that, do you? No, especially if you're going to try and sit in there for hour after hour mm. and finish a 24 hour race. So we, but we, the three of us all complained about it. And it was so dangerous. The three of us had discussions. Uh, that's when Alan Grice and myself about refusing to drive the car. Wow. It's so dangerous. But the Japanese, as they always do, uh, yes, yes, we will sort the front suspension. Uh, and the car never changed. Um, it was so dangerous. I kissed a Formula 2 car, literally on the straight. I'm flat out trying to hold the car straight. Um, and just as I went, I was on the left-hand side of the road. The Group C2 was on the right. Um, just as I went past him, hit a bump and it just uh, kissed him in the side. Luckily, we both carried on going straight, but uh, it could have been incredibly nasty. Mm. And that car never changed all week. And during the race, uh, we had a gearbox problem early in hours of the morning. And uh, it took about 40 minutes to uh, cure the gearbox problem. And we went out, we dropped to 33rd, and we got it back to 14th, I think. And we drove it as hard as we could for the rest of the race. Um, and it finished. And it, as I say, it's the worst car I've ever driven. Wow. Just getting it to the end sounds like an achievement in itself. Yeah. It was. It was quite emotional. But even yeah. that the japanese have a way of kicking you kicking you in the nuts occasionally <laughs> um, i'd never finished le mans in the previous six times i'd always had um very minor problems i did have one accident when poor joe gartner got killed i went off on his oil um and uh but mostly there were stupid little things like a <laughs> oil pump drive shearing and so on and so forth and i'd never finished so being in the car with 30 minutes to go the car was dying the wheel bearings had gone and it was even a worse car at the end of the race at le mans than usual um but nursing at home i thought thank god i'm going to finish le mans for the first time and i'm going to be driving the car to get a radio call on the straight uh wild sand box this lap box this lap and i'm looking and everything seems fine and well i have to do as you're told so at the end of that lap i came into the pit lane and was told to get out of the car so i got out of the car and there was um a japanese formula one driver drove for lotus uh, can't remember his name but uh he'd never sat in the car all week hadn't qualified the car, but because the Japanese car had blown up at around 12 hours, um, a Japanese driver would finish Le Mans in, a, in the Nissan. Uh, right. 
Um, and I thought, well, that's it. We're going to be disqualified. I was livid. The three of us had put so much into bringing yeah. that car. Getting that through. Um, but you're an employee. You're getting paid good money. Uh, when they tell you to get out the car, you get out the car. Um, so whatever his name was, finished the race. And uh, I went ballistic at them. And they said, oh, okay, thank you very much. You'll never drive for us again. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <bad>. <laughs> hey, and, and and what happened after the race? Were you disqualified or did you get nope. the classification? I don't know how they did it. We, had, we were the only team who had a fourth driver. <laughs> wow. Very weird. What an experience. Yeah. What an experience. So, so looking, you know, jumping a few years forward now and looking at Porsche, Group C cars. I mean, you know, through our some mutual friends that we've got, Mike. You know, you've done some great, you know, historic Group C driving. You know, most recently in Reiner's car, which of course is a very early nine five six. But also, yes. you raced very successfully um, the Lloydy cars, haven't you? The Nigel yes. Stroud tub cars. You know, what are they like, and what are the differences between those cars? Well, funny enough, um, when I drive Reiner's car, which is chassis 101, which was the first of the 956 customer cars, uh, sold to Kramer uh, that Mario Andretti, Michael Andretti and Philip Alio finished third at Le Moyne in 1983. I mean, how privileged am I mm. when it lets me uh, race that car with him? Um, driving that car, I drove the Skull Bandit, um, one of Henry Pierman's cars at the Silverstone Classic, yeah, only in a demonstration, but very kindly they said, uh, go as fast as you want. So I did. I even overtook Derek Bell. I thought, <laughs> this is the one and only time, I suppose, in a, in a group <laughs> to overtake Derek Bell. But he he's, didn't seem to be pushing on very much. So uh, uh, I enjoyed that car. The difference is really... <clears throat> especially with Pinky, which was the um, Richard Lloyd car I drove with Henry. We won the Classic Championship in 2008 in that car. Um, they had slightly better aero, so therefore you could carry uh, a bit more corner speed in the quick corners than I can with Reiner's yeah. uh, with the original Le Mans aerodynamic uh, package fitted it had more power yeah but the general feel of the car with the noises of the engine the wastegates the beautiful gearbox that has synchromesh which is wonderful uh, to be in a long distance race every other group c car i've ever driven has a dog box yeah so you're mindful that you don't want to have to change dog rings in the gearbox during the race so um it's lovely that uh, you you sit in a 956 or a 962 it's quite claustrophobic they're quite small but you have a key and you have a rev counter and you have an oil temperature gauge. And it's just like sitting in a supercar. Mm -hmm. You turn it on with a key and you start it. It ticks over. Um, the Nissan would never tick over. 
Um, <laughs> you drive it out of the pit lane. Yes, the clutch is fairly heavy, but you accelerate, and then suddenly when the turbos start to work, then you realise that you are sitting in something special. And that all those experiences of sitting in a Group C Porsche, it doesn't change whether you're in a 956, a 962, or a Richard Lloyd modified um, Group C Porsche. It's all the same. It's fairly minor differences in that uh, Rhino runs his car at a, a moderate boost because of the cost of engine rebuilds and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, we drive it with. Um, due deference to its history and i i'd be mortified if i put a scratch on that car or yeah yeah the curb with it or so we drive it in a particular way yeah um but overall they're all very very similar uh it's just that when you look at the stopwatch when you're in a uh, a richard lloyd 962 as opposed to reiner's um you've just done a lap that's quicker it doesn't really feel okay too much different you know the way you describe driving the the 956 and the 962 is historic cars sounds like there's real joy and they almost sound quite accessible and i, I mean i think ryan is a bit of an exception because as you say he's ever so fast but and i've always wondered and i was keen to ask you you know because you do lots of instructing in all sorts of you know fast modern porsches and that sort of thing when i'm you know i've always I've always thought if I ever had the opportunity to own a Group C Porsche, of course I would, you know, why, why wouldn't you? But then I think, God, you know, could I actually drive the thing? So if, you know, if you were working with a client who had a fast, you know, doing lots of track days in GT3s and that sort of thing, and they said, Mike, I'm going to buy a 956 or a 962, um, you know, is that something that, that one could do and actually drive the car and get some enjoyment from it? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. It's not um, to drive them very quickly. There is, um, it's it's not easy to drive to get that last second um, yeah. out of the um, the car. But you'll be able to you'll be able to drive the car to a degree where you would get immense enjoyment out of it as you see with these local um uh not local um i hate the word amateur but um private owners yeah uh, yeah. private owners who own uh group c porsches and jaguars and so on and they drive them very well uh but they're not quite on the pace but they're on a pace that, my God, you'll get some enjoyment out of that motor car. Yeah. And yes, you'd need a little bit of instruction, possibly. Uh, they're quite physical to drive. So uh, in the old days, I, I would do two-hour stints or whatever. Now I do 40 minutes and my neck hurts and yeah. my shoulders. And so they are quite physical. They don't have power steering and therefore i tend to sit quite close to them so i can get some purchase yeah Uh, and having said all that 
they are just the best. As I've said, <laughs> they are just the best. And yes, if you went and bought one tomorrow, and even if you didn't have any instruction, um, Might have been a phone call. Ah, oh, there we go. Now we're back. Um, the uh, this is the problem with my computer going wrong. <laughs> um, where was I? Yes, uh, you, the worst is the first lap or two because when the slicks aren't uh, yeah working, <laughs> they can be quite dangerous. Yeah. So. Uh, you just get the tyres warm, get the brakes warm, and then just drive it fast. And you'd be amazed how fast you can drive it. Um, yeah. It wouldn't be a problem. For somebody who's done a bit of track driving in um, a GT3 RS, it'll be, uh, it would be perfect. Yeah. Well, that's great. Now, that's, I'll keep shooting for that then, right? That's yes. always the dream. <laughs> the lottery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I keep playing. I keep playing. I keep an eye on the cars. I tell Trevor he's going to need to run it for me. Absolutely. And I'll, well, I'm, there's, I'm, nobody be- there's nobody better in this country than Trevor on those sort of cars. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm ready to go. I just haven't quite got the funds. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can imagine uh, how privileged I feel that these uh, these owners let me drive these these motor cars. It's uh, it's a bit of an honour for me, and I don't take it lightly at all. Yeah, they are very special. I, I, I think of a couple of times when we've been at, well, we've been there there together at BRDC track days at Silverstone, yeah. and I'm going around with my camera, um, and I'm sort of waiting for you or Rhino to come up the pit lane, and you're coming up in amongst, you know, really, really special cars, you know, cars that we, we love, GT3s and all sorts of interesting things, and then you come up pit lane in a 956, and, you know, everything else just looks rubbish. <laughs> um you know they're so special yeah they are they are um that's really great insight and thank you for sharing those memories yeah you know, fantastic about, thank you you know being well, at, at the more in in the era that's really that's it really something else and, and also an insight into what the cars are like the porsche cars are like now um that's fascinating yeah i mean they, they were so far ahead of their time i mean yeah. they, they wouldn't disgrace motor racing now well, they don't disgrace motor racing now. They are iconic. Um, and as I say, I would just wish I could have driven C1 Porsches uh, in the day, but um, I've driven lots of them now uh, for all different kinds of owners, 956s, 962s, as you say, Richard Lloyd ones. Um, I must make a list because I've driven a, a I drove the Jay David car the other day prior to the Silverstone Classic bedded in after its um, rebuild for, for Trevor Crisp. Some Americans bought it yeah. and couldn't get over, so I bedded that car in. Um, it would be interesting to, interesting to see how many I have driven. I drove so you've driven, uh, back in the day, didn't you drive one of the Shell Dunlop cars as well? One of the Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah. When it was Henry's car, I drove yeah. And I drove his silk cut Jaguar, and uh, I, how, how lucky am I? <laughs> <laughs> Very lucky those, man, indeed. Those silk cut Jags, those V twelve silk cut Jags, they sound that's 
something else, aren't they? The yeah, noise mate, that they make. Yeah, you should be sitting in front of it, uh, <laughs> and it's singing along down towards Cox. It's very special. I bet it is. I bet it is. That's wonderful, Mike. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank today. you. Thank you, Mike. It really is our pleasure to have you on the podcast. So thanks for dedicating your time to to chat to us again about these special race cars. Yeah. It's a pleasure. I love the way, you know, you have a passion like my passion. So uh, Porsche is my thing. I'm chuffed to bits that I still own one. And uh, I've always got to have a Porsche in my life. And um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you all. Thank you. Amazing. And we can't wait Thank for the you. book to come out, Mike. Keep us yeah. keep in touch on that one and we'll we'll definitely talk about it when it's uh, when it comes out. Well, for a for a man who hated school and left as quickly as he could to try and become a racing driver, I wasn't very academic, so I'll apologize for my grammar and <laughs> so on now. But uh, somebody's looked over it and said it was a good read. So um, I'm just hoping that the publisher um can get it out uh, in the next few months. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. Bye, That's something to look forward to. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank Raz. you, Mike. Nice one, Mike. Thanks very much for your time again. Much appreciated. Thank you. God bless you. Take care. Bye. 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 It's always fantastic to hear from Mr. Mike Wiles, racing extraordinaire, and as Max pointed out earlier on, a real friend of the show here at Nineworks Radio. Uh, but we move from the driver in Mike Wilds to the engineer in the legendary Norbert Singer, and this is a real exclusive for us and for you listening at home. Um, yeah, this is a segment of a chat recently that we've done with Mr. Norbert Singer. Porsche this year is celebrating 40 years of Group C, you mm-hmm. as as the engineer that was responsible for the most decorated period in in the company's racing history, how do you look back on that period now? Uh, well, now it's it, it, it's uh, interesting because there are a lot of details which uh, I didn't realize during the work because you were preparing and developing and for the next race for the next season and so on. Yeah, in, in in our mind and that uh, and, and the colleagues have had it similar. It's like uh, well, it was just happened some some last weeks or so. <laughs> at the time, Norbert, when you know the success at Le Mans in in the mid eighties, when you completely dominated the sport, really, um, but certainly at Le Mans, I don't suppose the magnitude of what you and your team was achieving, perhaps that hadn't sunk in no not really because we 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 got the 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 the, well we had to make a new car because the regulation has uh, uh, changed a lot yeah and we were interesting and especially these uh, things like ground effects or (laughs) uh, consumption when you're sitting before the season okay it's a consumption it's fine but it's not like a, a, a number, like a, a displacement of an engine, yeah. two point something meters, and that's it. And then you know. But consumption, it's it's a, a, a variable uh, piece, and and uh, which you cannot really uh, put your fingers on. So you had to do a lot of tests, and you had to do, and then you you, you realize, ah, okay, uh, it's working, but on on each circuit, it's different. Well, Silverstone, for instance, is different like Mall. The Mall is, is uh, special anyhow. Or uh, Spa, for instance. And it's always a new challenge to find out what is... And 
through the years, let's say after one, two, three years, you you know what what you had to do, and you know what you what you get. Yeah. These, these figures get more concrete. Let's say this way. That's what I mean. These are these are the figures on on a, on a, a certain displacement. You can put your fingers on, and that's it. Yeah. But with the variable consumption numbers, it's not so easy. <laughs> So the, the the nine five six, of course, it's known for its its ground effect chassis and the Singer dent. I'd like to bring in the famous Singer dent at this point. How were you able to test the aerodynamics of the car? Well, it was it was a, of course it was a big challenge. We had a, 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 we went to the model wing tunnel on the Stuttgart University FKFS, uh, the Institute for uh, Car Technology. Yeah, and we were in previous. Time we were doing also some measurement there, so it was the internal was was known to us, but it was a a very simple internal. And when you talk to people who are now doing aerodynamics for the new group, uh, whatever cars, they say it's impossible. You cannot do ground effects in that such a internal because there was no moving belt, there was no turning wheels, there was but. The wind tunnel was pretty old, but after a week, we, we, we realized it's working. We get a lot of downforce. We, the drag was not so high. So it, it's, it's, we are on the, on the right way, but we were not sure if that what we are measuring, we will get that on the, on the, on the circuit. Yeah. So, and, and then we had, uh, when we built up the first prototype, uh, one car. Uh, for me, it was most important to run, to put the, the complete car in a full-scale wind tunnel to get an idea if what we found in the model to be found that on a full-scale car also. Yeah. And a full-scale car was only possible to measure in Volkswagen wind tunnel. So we went up there for a day because they are very short on, on, on time, you can get there. So we've got a complete day. And this was before the first uh, test was running, the, 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 everybody was excited. Do we, do we find the result what we, what we expect? And it was quite a relief that we found the numbers, what we had in, in the, in the, in the, in the uh, small, in the, in the scale tunnel, tunnel. And so then after, a while, you start and said, thinking, okay, now we had similar numbers on the full scale car. Is it realistic with these funny ground effects? Do we get that also on the road? And then uh, Jürgen Barth was driving first time in Weissach, the, 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 the car, the test car. I was asking him several times, what happens there? What happens here? What is the car doing? And he was looking at me and said, it's fine. It's wonderful. <laughs> Why are you asking such silly questions? I said, well, I, I want to know <laughs> what happens really on the road. Because in these days, you don't have any data equipment in the car. And then, when, uh, I don't know who was first. I think Jackie Hicks was, was first driving the car. And I was asking him the, exactly the same question. What happens here? What happens there? Is the car stable? Is that it? And he was looking at me and said, it's, it's nice, the car to drive. <laughs> but why are you asking? <laughs> because I was still to the first test day, not really sure 
until we get that's what we found in the small trouble to be fighting on the on the road. This is where your undoubted talents come into it, Norbert, because there's, there's a brilliant quote in your book that I absolutely love. And it says, an engineer who does his homework can reap great benefits from the air. So, you know, you didn't need computers. <laughs> the switch from the 956 to the 962 was necessitated. Was the 962 more difficult of a challenge than the 956? We had already uh, two seasons in the 956 running. So we knew the chassis is fine. Uh, of course, there were a lot of details to improve, but in principle, it was a very successful uh, uh, car because we won the mall, we won uh, the other races, so it was very successful. Now, uh, we want to give the, the US customers a car on the basis of, of course, on the 956. Yeah. We would love to sell just 956s to, to, the, to the IPSA. Yeah. But they didn't allow it because of this regulation with the center of the front axle and, and the uh, pedal uh, plates. And we were, our pedals were about 10 centimeters more uh, in forward of the center of the front axle. So now, uh, uh, we had the, the big question, how can we solve that problem? We cannot make the car longer because uh, uh, the length was similar to what we had in, in Group C. And uh, so we had the possibility to make the uh, wheelbase shorter, so to, to put the front axle back to the, to the pedal, or you move it forward. Mm. And so... And, and, and to put the, the pedals back was not possible because then you had to change the fuel tank, you had to change the rear of the car. So there was a big change. And the decision was done very late. I think the 962 was done in, in three months. We started wow. in, in September, October, and we run in January in Daytona. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't realize it was such a short window. It was a very short time. So... We were looking for a, for a, and, and these discussions took quite some time. But then we came up and said, okay, let's put just the front axle to the front that we will need the regulation with the pedals. Unfortunately, the front overhang is shorter, which sounds simple, but your ground effect is, 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 is different because we, we have it, uh, let's say, optimized for, for a certain overhang, and now we make it uh, a lot shorter. <laughs> so we had to do some wind tunnel tests and work to, to, to work it out that we have similar uh, a similar situation as in the 956, which actually happened. Yeah. And uh, the other thing was we had to do, uh, and that's why we are starting with a, um, a more configuration. It was not because of the drag, it was on the other kind of regulation in IMSA. Uh, IMSA said in that days, the wing, when you look on, on from, from the top of to the car, the wing had to be inside the, the bodywork. And on the short tail, the wing is behind the bodywork. Yeah. So the body stopped. And then there was another, I don't know, 30, 40 centimeters where the wing was uh, behind the car to help the ground effects, the diffuser tunnels and all, to, to, the wing could help a lot. 
it, it also did help a lot. So, so regulation says no, the wing had to be on top of the body rest. That's why we want to do, we don't want to to uh, develop a complete new body rest, which was not possible in that time. Similar to the monocoque changes, uh, we took the more version where the wing was on top on the on the on the body rest. Yeah. Of course, we made it wider, and we we we, we opened the, the the front singer piece, and we uh, and we uh, modified the the diffuser tunnels just to make them the aerodynamic balance right. And this all this was done uh, uh, in three months, or four months when we were we went testing in in, in January with the car. Your sixteen overall Le Mans wins that, that you had a, a clear hand in it, um, <laughs> it, it it's, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. It blows my mind. But obviously, your your track record as a first class engineer is, of course, proven. But you obviously are blessed with a pedigree in racecraft as well, because you were involved in a very big way during the actual races. So I'd be really keen to know which side of the job did you come to enjoy more? Was it building a competitive car within the regulations to begin with? or helping to negotiate the car and the team through the rigours of a 24-hour race? Uh, well, these two jobs are completely different, Yeah, of course. But uh, what was very interesting for me, when you develop a car, you take the car and you go out for racing. And you learn a lot of things in the race, which helps for further development. So... It was a, a different. It is a different uh, uh, job, but it's also very, very interesting. And, and I, I think both are equal interesting. <laughs> One side is developing, but you know exactly for what you're doing. You're not just making your job and you sell the car and uh, that's fine. No, that with that product you develop, you had to go racing, yeah. and you had to do this job as well. So. The connection between racing and developing is very short, and that's what I like. I mean, that's why what I told you before, when a, a, a mechanic was coming up and said, well, look, uh, for instance, like, how can I change the battery at Le Mans in the night, in the rain, at, at 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the night? Yeah, everybody is sleeping. Well, not, of course, not sleeping, but everybody is tired. <laughs> And, and, and when it's raining, it's even worse. How can I do it very fast? So please think about, and then you had to make a compromise between uh, weight uh, balance and all these things, but for faster uh, maintaining the car if something happened. And these things were very close together. Yeah. And this was, was exciting for me. And that's why I liked it really, to work the car, and going for it with that product for racing and see what you did right or what you did wrong. <laughs> yeah. Look, no, but honestly, for, for me, this has been such a such an, an honor and a privilege to talk to you. As I said at the start, I'd like to say thank you very much on behalf of, of Nine Works for your time. And and yes, go well and, and very much hope to, to see you soon. You're welcome. And hope to see you next year in, in the Zoom. Right, guys, that was Group C. It'd be interesting, I think, to finish by talking about the downfall of Group C, yeah. Max, are you able to enlighten us at all? Well, as a victim of, I think it was a victim of its own success. Um, you know, there's a there's a conspiracy theory that says that Bernie Eccleston killed 
the series um, because it was becoming as popular as mm. Formula One. Whether that's true or not, um, I don't know. I don't think it's ever been proven. But the formula was changed uh, so that uh, all cars had to use a Formula One-derived three-and-a-half-litre engine. So the variety that came with Group C was lost. Yeah, um, that was that's and, the charm of it, wasn't it? Really? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And also the costs. I mean, it was already a very expensive formula, which is why it helped that manufacturers were so interested in it. But the costs spiraled even beyond that. Um, and the series, I think the series was due to continue in 1993, and that had so few entries that they cancelled it before it began. So yeah, it was a real sad uh, decline. I mean, I, I remember being at the Silverstone thousand kilometers in the early 90s and it being you know it was a long race we were there for a long time and there weren't a lot of cars you know Derek Warwick I think was hammering around in the Peugeot of the time dominating but there weren't many cars it was a shadow of its formula self which is I mean it's sad isn't it but then you know that led to a really interesting rebirth in GT cars uh later which you know that's something we ought to touch on as well in the future but yeah it was the end of Group C all good things must come to an end max indeed indeed yeah <laughs> uh so look with with that in mind we'll sign off from 40 years of group c before we go though we want to spread some love yes always got to spread some love go on then andy you're keen <laughs> i'm keen um i can't re- remember what i was going to do <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, what was it what was it uh no i can't I've, it's totally gone come back to me i've got oh. another coffee shop there's a coffee shop in tring in hertfordshire if anyone's near there called the espresso lounge um run by a guy called aaron who's into cars um and he is uh he's a bit of a celeb in the barista world you know he competes <laughs> and he makes the most incredible coffee i think that i've ever had uh to be honest um and they also have incredible brownies so the espresso lounge in tring really great place really great team that run it check it out yeah he's hankering for a free flat white there yeah, isn't he? He is, <laughs> absolutely have you had your free kebab yet <laughs> no i haven't actually oh you need to that hasn't that been works. forthcoming need to get on that <laughs> uh right i found what i was thinking of um porsche club of america have got a youtube channel and they've been doing some really good um spotlights they're called pca spotlights and they there's one in particular no there's well there's a few actually that i've seen but this one is really good it was on the 3.2 so it goes through the full history of the 3.2 carrera from 1984 to 89 and they got a lineup of all of the cars and going through all of the different changes each year it's a little bit spotty in some ways um but really interesting what does spotty mean spotty means yeah, what's that mean? Um, a, a bit beige trouser, I guess. Oh, a bit anorak. A bit anorak, but yeah. they are good. The guy that presents it, I don't know what his name is, um, but he seems very knowledgeable. I think he must have um, quite a collection of cars because he, he always seems to to know the, uh, an awful lot about these different cars. Uh, but yeah, if you check out the PCA Spotlight videos, I'd suggest they were a, a good uh, a good watch for a spod. Tops, yeah. absolutely. Sounds up tops. my street. 
yeah. <laughs> right up my strata. <laughs> uh, right, yeah, I'll finish off the uh, the spread love section. Um, I'm going to go this week for uh, right tune, and I think what I'm going to try and do with this section is try and pass on a bit of love, not only um, for businesses but also to listeners as well. I think it's really important um, to give a little bit back. So uh, yeah, look, we all have heard of right tune, uh, the Oxfordshire-based Porsche specialist. Chris Wright, of course, uh, running that and a friend of the podcast has been on many times. Um, I also take my 996 to those guys as well. Um, so yeah, look, Chris has been really kind uh, to offer 10% off parts and labor for any work undertaken at the company's uh, premises. All you got to do is quote nine works 10 with every order or booking. You can get in contact with Chris via Instagram or on the blower on 01491 826 911. Nice Brilliant. spread the love. That's a great one. Good, good engineering base firm there. I bet they really know what they do. I bet you wish you had that uh, code last week, Max. <laughs> well, I did, of course. I'm a <laughs> Nineworks subscriber, Nineworks member. Oh, so he did already. He was yeah, on yeah. it. Yeah, oh, yeah, good, 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 yeah. Good. Yeah, I was ready. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> cracking all right gents a pleasure as always to have a chat as we celebrate 40 years of group c we'll catch you next time see you next time ladies this episode was brought to you by our very kind patreons if you enjoy the podcast and would like to join them in supporting us you can do so at patreon.com slash nineworks radio 